and welcome back to the Dicebreaker podcast. This is episode 19. Uh, any fun jokes about the number 19? Uh, it's it's Alex Lowley's favourite number and I hate that I know that. <laughs> You're right. Oh, it's a shame we don't have Lowley's with us. Lowley's, we hope you get better soon. Lowley's is unfortunately off sick today, which is why she's not joining us. Um, but mm. hopefully we do justice to her favourite number in this here podcast. Uh, I am Matt Jarvis. I'm the editor-in-chief of Dicebreaker. I am joined this week by two of the team. I'm joined by Michael Wheels Whelan. Hello. Hello. Welcome yeah. back. It's been a little while since we had you on the yeah, pod. How are you doing? I've been. I've had a few busy weeks, so I've had to defer podcast duty to to either Johnny or Lodi's. But yeah, I'm back. Uh, which doesn't mean I'm not busy. <laughs> it just <laughs> means that I'm less busy. So it's good. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you for having me on. Excellent. And of course, we have Alex Meehan. Welcome back. How are you doing, man? I'm. I am okay. Um. <laughs> That's the feel-good spirit we aim for on the Dicebreaker podcast. Well, okay. I, I'm so pumped up. Beans for the beans. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I should start making like blanker noises. You know, like when he's charging energy and stuff. Oh, Blanker no from clue. Street Fighter. I yeah, ironically Fighter. blanked on that reference. Um, <laughs> we are, of course, here to talk about board games and tabletop role-playing games and all sorts of stuff for the yeah, next enough, hour and a half or so. Enough of those video games. Yeah, get those out of here. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> was that whip? <laughs> I don't know. I, like, it was my thumb going backwards <laughs> as well, whipping over my shoulder. Um <laughs> But let's get rolling, because there's actually, again, it's been quite a busy a busy week of news. But first of all, as we always do, let's open with what we've been playing. Wills, as it's been a while, what have you been playing? I, um, so I have played uh, the entire box of Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, <laughs> the Baker Street Regulars, and it is one of the best things I have ever played. Wow. Um, I'm I am currently in the process of roting, roting, <laughs> roting. Wow, it's been a while, gang. You've really gone I'm, back I'm to Victorian in the... England. <laughs> I'm in the process, of Governor, of roting a, a why you should play. Um, yeah, like why you should play Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, which is also sort of like a here's the new box and here's why it's amazing. Um, so it's written by a guy called David Neal, um, and it is. So I think this is like weirdly this is the first Sherlock Holmes box that I've played. Mm. I've wanted to play them for a long, long time, but I always thought, oh, I should probably start with the first one, but it's so hard to come by. I didn't realise, and this is my PSA for anyone who's in the same boat as me, wanted to play the first box. Um, the first box is available, they've just rebranded it. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. now called the Thames Murders, I think. Yes. Uh, yes. And, and other cases. So, um, <laughs> yeah, what happened was it, the original one was called just called Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, yeah. And then they were like, oh, we can make loads of these. So let's just, like, give it a... <laughs> Big man and his cigar, we can make loads of these, oi. <laughs> and now there are multiple, but I believe you can play them... You can play them in any order, I think, yeah, yeah which I, yeah. I didn't really trigger at the time. But So eventually we got... Um, so, you know, every week we get, like, a sort of here, here are the new things Asmodee are, are putting out, um, and they're distributing it. And actually publishing it, I think, because it's... Um, Space Cowboys? Yes. Yeah, because the yeah, original so consulting detective was Yastari, uh, or Yasarity. I can't remember the publisher, the French publisher, but it was notorious for having quite a few typos. Despite being yes. a great game, the writing was 
just iffy as a result of I think quick yeah I don't think it was necessarily bad writing but it was like poorly edited writing mm. I think was the issue um, even to the point where I think one of the cases you had to kind of google it because it was kind of unsolvable because of a typo which yeah. really sucks um, but the like writing is, is a good segue because this box like not only are the, are the adventures like really fun and like really interesting mysteries the writing in this book is fantastic Dave Neal has done an incredible job mm. and I think because there are so many mystery games out there right now which are just like like it's like they're board game designers but they're not they're not writers I th- I remember listening to people talk about Detective and Modern Crime board game or whatever and it's just like you'll have like five cards of someone saying the salad in the canteen was bad I spent my day looking at papers and then you read the whole card and then you put it down and you're like I have not actually learned anything about the thing that we're supposed to be doing mm. whereas like and that's by um oh no you know how to say his name, Ignacy Shevichek. Yes, I, I like Detective, a modern crime board game, despite <laughs> having a terrible, terrible name. Um, but the writing is not the strong part of that game. Yeah, I, and I really I, like I think, the structure of it, but the writing is definitely a bit like, hmm, okay. I think you need to have really good writing to carry these kind of games yeah. because you're basically just reading a book, right? Just in, in an order that you try and uh, wrangle yourself. Yeah. And like the honestly, some some of the I don't know if it carries out throughout all of the boxes. I've only played one other case that wasn't Dave Neal from the original box. So I've played the Munitions Magnate, I think, from the original box because I want to look at the original and see which of the two is like the better to start with because I think the games progressed a bit over the years. Um, but my god, yeah. So like you you follow the Baker Street Regulars, which are like the little orphans that help out Sherlock Holmes. Mm. So you've got Wiggins, who's like the classic, who's part of the crew. And I think he's part of the gang like a lot of the time when you're playing the other adventure boxes. But now you actually have all the rest of the guys that hang out with him. So you've got Tinker and and Simpson and all that kind of stuff. So like one is like a he sells matches on a street corner and stuff like that. You live in like an abandoned factory somewhere. Um, so it's very but it, it it doesn't just say, Oh hey, your kids now like it actually you know, it's Victorian England, so they look at um the Child uh, Labour Act and all that kind of stuff and like there's intrigue with the politicians who are around that and then there's um there's problems with like child abductions and all that kind of stuff like it's it's really like interesting and like it you know portrays some of the the darker edges of, of victorian england which i mean it had a lot of them yeah. <laughs> the, the darker edges of a very dark history speaking of which have you do you have the jack the ripper box Wheels. I do. So I, I I asked Tim if he could just send them over so I could have a look at all of them and see which one was the best to start with. Yeah. Why do you ask? Because that so that obviously is based on the real life Jack the Ripper cases. Yeah. So it's it's more of a connected campaign, whereas a lot of the other consulting detective ones you can kind of play piecemeal. But because mm-hmm. it's based in reality, I found that one a little tougher. It's a bit more brutal to go mm. through. Difficult uh, to read. Yeah, I think a lot of the time, like, these cases, whilst they, they will deal with, like, murder and stuff, um, like, the cases in the Big Street Regulars, there weren't any that I found, like, distasteful or anything like that. Mm. Like, they were always... They always had that sort of fun kind of Sherlocky feel to them where it was like, it's all fine. Don't don't look at all of the horrible child labour in the background. Everything's okay. Um, Please, but Mr. It, Sherlock, I've only, got, <laughs> I've only got a minute lunch break. <laughs> I need to go under the machines and get my arms torn off. Oh, God. <laughs> That's what well. happened. 
Um, I was, yeah, I was, I was talking to. So I'm playing it with my partner, and I was talking to her about Fossey Jewel the other day. <laughs> it's not, not a good time period. But anyway, um, so like it, it doesn't just. I think one of the the reasons this stuck with me the most, and I don't know if it's the case with the other boxes. Like it's really character driven. So like you have your list of informants. So you've got like Murray, who's the criminologist, and and Meeks, who's like the the pathologist and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you'll go to them a lot of the time because they're your informants, right? So you might go to Lestrade to hear what the police know about the case. Or you might go to Lomax the Librarian to look up some kind of encyclopedic research or whatever. And you'll get a real feel for those characters as they develop over time. So, like, one of them was um, was Murray. I think it's Murray. It might be me because I always get the two confused. But he always pronounces Wigan's surname wrong. And I think he's done it, like, throughout the books and throughout the boxes. But, like, oh, hello, Wibbles. <laughs> Every time you come in. And, like, you can you can hear the voices of the people as you're trying to reason them. And I, I think that makes it a lot more fun to read out the the parts of the book and stuff like that. Mm. For anyone who doesn't know how it works, essentially you've got, um, it's very cool. So you have like this big box, you open it up, there is a big sprawling map of central London, all divided into districts and all sort of littered with all the numbers of all the locations you can visit. You've got a big book of like case leads essentially, which map to those numbers. So if you want to go to see Holmes, he's in 42 Northwest. So you could turn to that part of the book and read the section. It'll give you clues. Um, and then you've got like a directory of London, which has like all of the addresses for people and businesses around the city. And then you have like the Times, so you have the front page of the newspaper for the day. So you're going through like all of these little bits of information, like trying to ignore all their red herrings. And then you'll get a little bit of a lead, and you'll follow you down a path. And like it, it's invigorating, like it's so exciting going because it feels like you're really actually cracking something. Mm. And I think a lot of the time. I think I watched a really old review. It might have been Quinn's, actually, on Shopping to Down or something. They were saying that, like, when, when you get to the end of the book, you basically read the solution. And it's that classic thing of, um, you're, like, you're not Sherlock. You are the people who follow him around trying to figure out what the hell he's going on with. Um, and then he just sort of says, well, of course, it was very obvious if you just follow these four leads. And you basically get, like, points for how many different paragraphs you had to read before you cracked it. And if you got more than Sherlock, you lose five points off your score from the questions answered for every single one that you went over. So it's like you crack it and you're like, okay, that took us like 20 leads to solve. And you get to the end of the book, it's like, Sherlock Holmes would have solved this case <laughs> in five leads. And you're like, oh, come yeah, on. Like <laughs> it's infamously known. I don't know uh, if uh, James Wallace came out of this, but it's from James Wallace. I heard it first. So thank you, James. But it's nicknamed... Sherlock Holmes insulting detective because he's you basically get to the end and he's like you complete fools you could have just turned the corner and there was the murderer yeah you just gained but it's like I don't he's never he'll like he'll take the piss out of Lestrade and stuff if he's around but he's never sort of like condescending in this book he's always just sort of like I mean, obviously, I just went to here because that makes the most sense. And you're like, oh, God, yeah, it does, doesn't it? You're like, it's, it's not even the fact that he's like, unless you're a real idiot, you would have gone to this lead. He's always just like, I mean, look, it's obviously this because of this. And you're like, oh, oh, yeah. You are, <laughs> yeah, makes you sense, are playing actually. as kids. Yeah, exactly. Probably give me a bit more slack. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it very much like, yeah, it, it gives you a real feel for those characters. And like, you get really invested um, so, like, halfway through the book, one of the cases, and it's not a spoiler because it's the intro to the to the case, it deals with Wigan's backstory and, like, um, what happened to his parents and all that kind of stuff. And you get, like, this flashback 
Um, and there's like this kind of like it's this quite sad flashback and like <laughs> I don't know if I've ever expressed this don't really care about kids but um, <laughs> it's like throughout this whole thing it's like oh this tragic backstory of this kid and I was like yeah whatever and then like the, the woman who's talking is like Henry are you listening to me Henry Wiggins and you're like oh, Wiggins <laughs> <laughs> so like he's like really quiet throughout the adventure and like you'll see him sort of contemplating and stuff and you'll get little flashbacks and it's like it's really really interesting to like dig into the backgrounds of these characters even to the point where like the oh hello Wibbles character like towards the end of the book you'll be like oh is there something going on with him like you'll you'll have to pick up threads and stuff hmm. and, and I don't want to spoil it because it's a sort of secret thing but at the end of the book, you finish it and you get like this big like end adventure. Number 10 is like this. It takes like hours and hours to play. It's amazing. You have to look through all of the previous newspapers and in the previous cases to work it out and stuff like that. Um, and we finally got to the end of it, me and my partner, and finished it up. And it was incredible. And then we realized that like there was something that you normally do in other cases that it didn't ask you to do. And when we did that, we realized there were other things in the box that weren't part of the main adventures that if you're incredibly smart, you can look back and solve an entirely new mystery. Whoa. Like it's it's crazy. And I don't want to spoil how you get to it, but like just know that there is more than meets the eye in that box. It I had such a good time. Like genuinely I'm starting to think it's my game of the year. Like I had so much fun. I don't know if it's just because I've never played Shark before and maybe it's like this is just a good example of an already good game, but my god, I had a great time of it. Yeah, they are amazing. I think a lot of the cases do have that even if you don't get all the main main kind of case solved. There's mm. like, oh, where did this necklace end up? And things like yes, that where you can yeah, get a couple so they'll, of they'll points have like if secondary you questions. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that sort of rewards you for... If you're the kind of player who doesn't like to be like, oh, I don't want to go there because I don't want to lose points, you can make up... So I have beaten 100 points, which is like the, the Sherlock. Um, Sherlock always scores 100. If you manage to score over him, then you're like, ooh, look how smart you are. Um, some of them I got like minus 30. <laughs> but like, um, the reason we've beaten 100 points before is because although we lost points from the leads... The secondary questions, if you keep an eye out, there's always like another mystery that's happening that you can solve as well kind of thing. So it rewards you for going down lots of different avenues and stuff if that's your play style. Yeah. Like, and we wanted to know all the all the, all the the details and stuff. So so it, yeah, it, it doesn't feel too restrictive in that way. But yeah, I had such a good time. But it's such a pretty box as well. I think one thing that I noticed when going back to the original was that the assets don't look quite as nice as they do in the newest one. So that might be um, something to consider. You also get this this nice little play sheet which tracks all the letters that you've circled and mm. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's really good. And this, it, um, the Baker Street Irregulars, is a fairly new release, is it not? Oh, like brand new, yeah. It's yeah. Um, So, like, we we found this weird mystery at the end of the box. I literally had to DM Dave, the writer, <laughs> because nobody was talking about it because I don't think anyone had really gotten there yet. Because obviously we, we probably had, like, a slightly earlier copy because of the press releases. Um... And I was like, Dave, what does this mean? <laughs> and he was like giving us hints to try and figure out. I still haven't worked it out. I have no idea how it works. So but yeah, it's really, really cool. Do we know, uh, do we have a release date for this? I think it's out now. Yeah, it should be available now. I've, I've okay. seen people playing uh, like the first couple of cases on board game geek and all that mm. kind of stuff. The so, funny yeah. thing is, I probably wrote the news story on that game. <laughs> and like a lot of it's been pushed out. The info's been pushed out. Yeah, there's only so much news stuff. you can hold. <laughs> um, it sounds really awesome, to be honest. Um, my flatmate and I are still 
trying to get through Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Nothing against the game, it's literally just trying to get ourselves to sit down and, and yeah. play it. Um, but this sounds like the kind of game we'd also really dig. Because um, I... I really like mysteries, but I also hate ones that are really bad. Mostly yes. because of being subjected to endless episodes of Midsummer Murder. Um, <laughs> uh, I w- yeah, I would say they all feel like they've been written by someone who really knows what they're doing. Like, mm. I, I, at no point did we finish. It. There were some cases which felt like there was like one or two that felt a tiny bit like less interesting. Like it was sort of like, oh, that was all right. Then let's move on to the next one. I, there was there was one that's all about time management, which I didn't really vibe with. And then there's basically the ninth adventure is kind of just a preamble to the tenth, okay. because the tenth because the tenth one is so long, it kind of you know balances itself out. Mm. Um, but apart from that, like every case when we solved it, I was like, oh, that was so clever. Like it, it was, it never felt like. Um, Whenever we worked something out, we never felt like, oh, what? We were always just like, oh, like it always mm. had that kind of eureka moment, which I think is really important in these mm. kind of games. Mm. And um, it's really interesting because uh, like, series like Detective are kind of really going in that app-supported direction Yeah. of um, being like, oh, you can look around and see the, the crime scene and things like that. And I'm not wholly against the idea of that um i th- in my opinion i think a perfect medium would really work in terms of having little things like that but like the 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 strength is in the writing and the mystery mm. itself and like having that book and those letters you read i think genuinely add a sense of authenticity to it and i also think if they had added like some really heavy app Based stuff to this game, it would have felt weird with the with the setting. It would mm. have like really clashed. So I think them sticking to purely paperback physical is like a really good move. Did they have any like little like bits you could open and like little objects and things like that, or is it just a, just books? Yeah, it was never like um, like you didn't open a casebook and it was like, whoa, what's this weird implement? There were there were definitely like detailed illustrations of like open books, which you know, like you might have like a a ship passages um, ledger or something that you could sort of scan through, and then mm. when you get to the end one, you get so many of those. Like the book is like, we recommend you take photos so that you can look from <laughs> like without having to flick around. Um, so like we had like the we just had like an iPad and took photos and just like scanning through all mm. the stuff. Because I really yeah. like the idea of, and I've seen quite a few games that are more escape room style, like having little items that you can, like, use as clues or like, just yeah, like like, I- imitation letters that you open, mm. and I think that is really imaginative and it adds a really cool sense of immersion, especially in a setting like this. So I think I think it can go in too much in that way though, like where it's just all gimmicks. Yeah, so I, think... I, th- I think that the strength of this game is in the writing. Mm. So like they focus on that, and and like there are some cool gimmicks in the other ones in this sort of genre. But I think sometimes you can, like you said, you can get lost in that. Yeah, and you kind of you kind of forget the whole reason that you're doing this kind of thing. I think, which is just to have a really good mystery to solve and mm. have some some good story around it. You know. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Mion, let's move on to you. What have you hey. been playing this week? 
so obviously fought. Um, this is probably going to be the last time <laughs> for a long while because I obviously had to play that game a lot. This for is the last time <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing fought. <laughs> um, yeah, but, I mean, we played it for the stream last week. We did. Uh, had a good time. Watch on our I YouTube. I got absolutely bodied. <laughs> <laughs> You can watch that. You can watch Rules getting bodied on our YouTube channel. Um, I won. No. I was. I mean, I was going to say that mine's not much of a spoiler because <laughs> I was doing bad from like the first five minutes. But yeah, we've just kind of revealed the end of the stream. Now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're not here for the destiny. It's not about the winning or losing wheels. It's about the taking That's right. part. It's about the journey. That's right, Matt. Watch boy, the stream, please. Boy, what a journey it was. Um, yeah, and then I obviously played it around that as well, and my review went out Friday. Uh, as it's probably fairly obvious to people, I really like that game. Fully recommend it. Um, if you like deck builders, if you like games that encourage interaction between the players, if you like really well-designed and cute-looking games, I would advi uh, advise you purchase a copy, or, or at least play one. Um, Good stuff, Leader Games. Well done. This this makes up for Vast. So, um... <laughs> wow. <laughs> nah, it's fine. Um, I should be the last person to bring up that game. Um, I've also received a copy of this. I'm sorry for the listeners. Uh, it is a copy of the new D&D sourcebook for Mythic Odysseys of Pharos. Mm -hmm. Um... Which is out now, I believe. I think so. <laughs> uh, spoken with true confidence. I think it came out in late July. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, before I received this book, um, I did a very fun interview with the lead designers behind the game. Um, I would remember their names. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it on the book? Um it's fine um, <laughs> <laughs> they won't resent me for it uh, um, <laughs> oh my god we're, we're professionals here yeah um, absolutely yeah, uh, the, yeah the, the lead designers for the source book um, which is based on the magic the gathering set um, or multiple sets are based on the world of Ferros. Uh, I feel like Matt Jarvis has something to say. <laughs> no, no, no. no? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, he's probably trying to fill in the the many, many holes that are currently present uh, in this conversation. Um, yeah, so Pharos is like a world that's in massively inspired by Greek myth and uh, legend and not so much the history. Um it has loads of big monsters in it, like you'd expect, and obviously gods. Uh, and the big conversation we had in our interview was around um, the gods that populate this particular setting of D&D and magic. Um, they've been around in magic for, well, since the set was first released. Um, and obviously they've just been now introduced into the world of D&D. Uh, which is really interesting because these gods have a very different flavour about them from what you'd expect from Dungeons and Dragons gods. So I wouldn't say, you know, 
uh, a sense of decorum is anything really apparent there. <laughs> They're very much in the Greek style of God, meaning mostly mean and very self-centered and pretty much just interested in humanity as a way of sort of doing their bidding and and you know uh, having a good time um and this source book really reflects that i think because the gods are such an important part of it uh in the sense of when you create a character they are they have to be connected to the gods in some way whether that's because they follow a certain god or whether it's because they outright you know dismiss the gods entirely some characters you can make that are just fully god killers <laughs> because they're so sick and tired of being messed about uh that they've had enough uh and you can cr that that class is called it's not really a class it's more of a trait it's called I iconoclast which is where you can pick a reason why do you not like the gods whereas you know depending on what god you choose to c become like a connected follower to you can get supernatural powers from that so now it's not just clerics and paladins you know who are, are like i'm bodies with this god so i get cool mm. stuff everyone in for gets the cool stuff now so <laughs> it always cracked me up that like you can kind of be an atheist in D and D. yeah like, lads they're like you can just go visit them they're over there like <laughs> well it's depending on the storyline it's not so simple like a lot of gods in previous D&D lore were kind of like I'm just here hanging out <laughs> I'm not really interested in what's going on down there I, mm. uh, I suppose I'll give you a tiny little grain of my power if you are nice about me but otherwise I'm yeah I'm just I'll be over here in <laughs> in heaven doing god um, stuff doing god stuff <laughs> just um, god things <laughs> whereas <laughs> Whereas these gods are very much like um, Earth, well, in this case, Pharos is their playground. Uh, when someone posts a mean tweet about like another god or something, <laughs> and and one of them's like, "Oh, you didn't," and then how dare you? Yeah, well, <laughs> like we were when we were talking in our interview and in, in the book, it's very much a case of you can be fully contacted by one of the gods and they'll just be like so could you go over and like kill this this god for me please uh, or or go and like send a message to you know this other person that i don't like um and you know it's up to you whether you choose to do that or not uh but despite how terrifying it might seem to deny you know a god's wishes you can just outright do that because everyone in Ferros is just an, a much higher power level in general than other characters from the other D&D settings. It's all just sort of wild, really. It's like <laughs> it's like no holds barred. Like, yes, you can play as a minotaur. Yes, you can play as a satyr. Yes, you can play as a lion person. Not a tabaxi. A lion person. Or a fish fish person. Uh, a triton. Must be a lion. Yeah, yeah. Um... It's kind of no holds barred, really. But there is a lot of potential for interesting storytelling, um, as well as the wackiness. So, uh, I've yeah, I've been sort of perusing my copy. It's been on D&D Beyond for a while. Um, but now, you know, I have a physical 
version. So I can sit there in my lunch break, sort of going, ooh! With <laughs> <laughs> a kappa. Yeah, yeah, look, look at that. Look at that big old Hydra. Just like a prude, kind of like, ooh, just tutting at the, <laughs> the hijinks <laughs> of the gods. I mean, so, even uh, like Heliod. Heliod is basically like their version of Zeus. And we all know what I think about Zeus. Yes. Uh, well, you say so we is all. It, is this, this is like a, yeah. a dice brigade <laughs> in joke that can't be repeated on this podcast. Yeah, no, unfortunately, no. it's one of our slogans that doesn't translate to a t-shirt quite as well. Um, well unfortunately. Um, <laughs> Not one that we could sell anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, dice breaker being dice breaker, we have had conversations about Greek gods and Greek classics. And like Zeus is the lad of the group. Um so like Heliod is along the same lines in terms of like he is represents like the white uh, magic in magic. So obviously uh, magic has different colors of of power and like white is supposed to kind of represent, you know, uh, order and authority and things like that. And Heliod is just kind of like just swings his right around. Uh, it's a bit of a dweeb. <laughs> what? Bit of a dweeb. No, bit no. Dweeb. He's he's like more of a lad. But, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, this book's estimated. He's one of the boys, is he? <laughs> yeah, no. Like he's definitely like he he's meant to be one of the more, you know. Oh, um, you know, he's the he's the like the father figure that you know the guy that that people look up to. But equally, he just hates. Um, one of the other gods is the god of the underworld. There's a link there. Um, mm-hmm. And he doesn't really hate him for any particular reason. He just really dislikes him. And the god of the underworld is kind of like... Yeah. <laughs> like, some of the gods will hate the others for no apparent reason. And, like, the other god will be like, eh, I'm not that fussed about it. Like, I've got my own thing to deal with. But there's definitely some interesting connections there. So, um, yeah, I've been lost in the world of of Theros. Hmm. It sounds... I am intrigued. I I don't know if it's... We we don't know. This is not confirming anything, but I'd be intrigued to maybe go there as part of Dungeon Breaker at some point. Yeah! To see how we fare. Though if anyone is up to speed on Dungeon Breaker, you can probably imagine how we would fare in a world filled with even more powerful (laughs) beings. Yeah, I mean, like... Yeah, these... So obviously we're in Avernus at the moment and the deities and that are of a certain kind of morality but in this in this source book and you know in our interview when we were talking about it um, the morality of the gods it's very much less certain like they are more obviously they still have a classic D&D morality attached to them which I'm not a huge fan of anyway but it kind of feels more like that was just put there for the sake of, eh, we always do this, mm. uh, let's just do that, an alignment. Because, um, to be honest, even like the somewhat benevolent gods, like, um, oh, I think her name is Karametra, and she's like the goddess of the harvest and, and such. But she went through a stage of like being genuinely quite violent. <laughs> and a lot of people died. And now she's kind of settled down a bit and 
She's quite happy to be like, yeah, I'll help you grow your film. She's, be, uh, she's put her feet up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On the top but, of a mound of corpses. <laughs> but there is this sense of you never really know what could happen. Like, what could tip them over the edge. Like, they're just very unpredictable. And when you have beings that powerful who are incredibly unpredictable, then... Way, <laughs> well, welcome to the party, guys. Like, we're we're all in this. So, um, yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting setting. And as someone who is who is really into uh, the aspect of Greek uh, classical Greek literature in terms of like, oh, uh, these gods are kind of really petty, and uh, it's kind of fun to see their matches against one another um, and what happens because of that and this book is really into that so if you are into that then you're probably going to like Theros so who knows what might happen Mr Jarvis but I, I don't <laughs> I know <laughs> alright speaking of Mr Jarvis yeah well speaking he is, he's written in this doc Oh my god, I can finally talk about Pandemic. <laughs> yes, thank you. I think you. it's time to wind him up and let him run off. For segueing me. So as of <laughs> as of Wednesday, uh, so by the time you hear this podcast, which will go out on the Friday as usual, the embargo for Pandemic Legacy Season 0 has lifted, so my review will be live in both video and written forms. I'm so excited, Matt Jarvis. I can barely control myself right now. I mean, you can read it right now, Alex Meehan. Um what? And then by the time everyone else hears this, they can he- read it right now. Um, but so, I'll yeah. be sat here all smug because I've been like, I've read it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've already read that one, actually. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, uh, if anyone's been listening to the podcast for a few weeks, they'll know that I've been playing Pandemic Legacy Season Zero, uh, which is the third and last game in the Pandemic Legacy series, despite having a zero on the end. Um, I Obviously, I'm not going to give away any spoilers here, and I don't in my reviews either of them, so you can read both of those and keep everything kind of to discover for yourself. But I really like that game. I think coming out of it, I still think Season 2 is my favourite, personally, just because it's that little bit more experimental and weird. Um, But I think the thing that really shines about Season 0 is they do a really good job, like Wills was saying about the characterisation in the Sherlock Holmes games. Here, the kind of draw is like, you're you're actually invested in the pandemic world, and for a world that kind of started as just like, oh, I don't know, disease, like, here's some cubes. Um, it, I was really kind of blown away by, like, how much I actually cared about how how did we get to this point? Like, what are the factors behind this? Um, and so Season Zero is like a spy thriller. It takes place in 1962. And it very much is a spy thriller. Like, it's really leaning into that. It gets, not silly, but it definitely knows what it's going for. It, it's like, okay, you're you're having a lot of fun with this. Like, you've watched a lot of James Bond, you've read a lot of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, all of that kind of thing. There's You could go through and tick the boxes of yes, that, yes, mm. that, yes, that. But it all kind of comes together in a way that is just really enjoyable. And I think it's... Season 2 didn't... Like, Season 2, I think, is generally well-liked and, and held up. But I think it divided opinion a lot more than the first season because it was a bit more out there. And it was much more difficult at points, and it could be frustrating if certain things went wrong. I think Season Zero is much more consistent, 
both in its difficulty and in its general storytelling and gameplay. It's not. It doesn't push the boat out as much in terms of what you're doing. So the big additions are you can build teams, which are these little vans that trot between locations, and they basically act like player pawns, but they can be used on anybody's turn. But they, you know, they clear up agents, which are replacing the cubes. They can do certain actions to complete objectives and things like that. So it's not. It's not as wild as season two, which had you exploring the map and putting down stickers and drawing routes between locations and things like that. But I think it all serves the story, which is where a lot more of the surprises lie this time. So, so again, similar to Sherlock Holmes, um, there is a, a debrief book which has numbered entries, and depending mm. on whether you complete certain objectives, when you complete them, to what degree you complete them, and then just some straight-up explicit choices that you have to make as a group, you can push the story in multiple directions. Um, mm. And the the games before had this, you could have certain things where you know, you f- managed to do something or didn't manage to do something, but things would generally kind of railroad back into one place. My cat is clawing me in the side. That really hurt. <laughs> she really wants to hear about Pandemic Legacy. Or um, <laughs> just like Matt, you will not stop talking about Pandemic. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Holly. Um, so, yeah, I think season one and two, they generally kind of, they railroaded you back onto the main plot line a little bit more. And this still has, you know, if you don't complete a month, certain things will still happen as they will happen for everyone else but there's a lot more kind of granularity in okay we pursued like so there are two main objectives at the beginning of the game again no spoilers there's the soviets are developing a bioweapon called project medusa and there's a missing u.s agent called sarbic and those objectives are how you start out and they are kind of the two main plot lines at the beginning and you can kind of progress them at different speeds um, and take them in different directions so you could focus on just one or the other different things will happen as a result um, and yeah it's really hard to talk about without saying what happens because I'm kind of itching to speak to people and go what happened to you like what happened when you made this decision did you do that so um, there isn't you wouldn't say there's a potential of you're just traveling through Belgium and then suddenly there's a man on the road and he's like Please, I really need a bagel. And then you're like, do you give this person a bagel? And then if you don't give it to them, then like, I don't know, the the world just so no. Up. There are no like. There's, <laughs> Matt's there's no really from, trying to answer that question. <laughs> there's no one from Belgium requiring a bagel on the side of the road. I can confirm that. But there are, like I say, there are more explicit choices that happen during the story. So both outside of missions, because you have a kind of M-like handler called Coop or Cooper, um, and so you can you can decide to make certain decisions that will then potentially push the story in different directions. Some of them are like smaller things, some of them are bigger things, and some of them happen during missions. Um, so it's we chose to go after this rather than that. Um, generally, you can do like I say it's much more consistent in this difficulty. So we only had to repeat a game in one month. Um, so if you fail a game in the first half of the month, you then get a shot at the second half. Um, but we only had to do that once. Um, and like, obviously we, like we were playing with two people. We had played a lot of pandemic. We played both the pandemic legacy. So yeah, there's all get, kinds of variables. I, let's not experts go that far. In the field. But just for context, <laughs> you know, if you're coming into this completely fresh, you might have a different experience. Um, but on that note, I would also say, don't start with this game necessarily. I was I just going to ask that, yeah. So I think, like I say, the 
it's it's still a very good game. I think it actually is closer to original Pandemic than season two, particularly. But I think its best moments are where it pays off on you having played season one and two, and then certain moments will happen that reference things that happen in the future, and you'll go, oh wow. Whereas I think if you started with season zero and then went on to one and two, it just wouldn't have mm. the same impact. And I think some of the general kind of gameplay improvements as well mm. would feel a bit of a step back. Yeah, not it's... not a huge one, but it would be enough of a like, oh, like I kind of already know this. And yeah. like a lot of those games is the surprise. So I would I'd go one, two, zero still. It's like it's like you don't watch X Men Days of Future Past before you watch the original trilogy because then you won't get some of the cool references exactly in days of future past sure <laughs> and then you, you get. and you never watch x-men apocalypse which no. leads me on to the other game i've been playing X-Men i was just apocalypse. Saying, you do you do though play yakuza zero because that is a good jumping on point <laughs> yes yeah uh, but yeah, in this case, I would go one two zero. And if you yeah, if you want Why more full thoughts, so uh, read my review or watch my review. But I think it's a really good. I think it's a really good game. I think it's a really good finale to that trilogy. Um, but I think a lot of that power comes from having played the games before. So I think if you've already played the the two before, like you will you will enjoy this one, and mm. I think it will reward you. And if you haven't played any of them, I would start with one because it's still a bloody great game. Two That's is still really, a really good. Bloody great game. It's bloody great. And yeah, you just know that you've got a really good time ahead of you. Yeah. Uh, and that's my kind of thoughts on Season Zero in miniature. Hey, what was this other game you were going to segue in me? Yeah, so, so, that so we the, that. the awkward segue from X Men Apocalypse, which is a film you should not watch, is oh. uh, the other game I've been playing is WWE Royal Rumble card game. Oh, uh, you you telling me that's not good, Matt? Well, <laughs> you can be cynical all you like, Wills. Um, but it's it's from Ravensburger, who have done a number of decent kind of pop culture licensed mm. games. So they, they did the Villainous games, um, obviously based on the Disney stuff. They did, I think, the Jaws game? Yeah. Um, based on the film, yes. obviously, um, which, which was good. Uh, they've done a number of film and TV and whatnot adaptations, which have been really, really strong and good board games to boot. Mm. WWE Royal Rumble card game is not one of those. I'm devastated, Matt Jarvis. I really um, am. So <laughs> I was holding out all hope. I'll sum it up quickly. So the Royal Rumble, for those who don't know, so WWE, obviously, professional wrestling. The Royal Rumble is probably the best kind of big event that the WWE does because it's basically all of wrestling crammed into a couple of hours where every 60 seconds or two minutes or something like that, a new wrestler runs into the ring. There are 30 wrestlers. Um, if they are thrown out of the it. ring and both feet touch the floor, they are eliminated. So it's like a last person standing kind of thing. So it's a really Is that fun rule. If both if both feet both touch feet the touch the floor because there so have if been. So you land on your back and you crawl back Absolutely. over. Absolutely. So there is a, a fantastic <laughs> wrestler called Kofi Kingston who has whose kind of thing each Royal Rumble is he'll land on his hands and walk on his hands or he'll land on a chair like a desk chair and then scoot around and get back in. <laughs> Stuff like that. He's, he is incredible. Could you, could you technically um, floor his lava your way back as well? Yeah, yeah. So I think he has landed on like the commentating, like the uh, the commentators' oh table before God. things like that. So yeah, they they have fun with it. But it's the best thing about it is you see kind of 
all the storylines of all the wrestlers in very short bursts because as someone runs in the commentators will be like my god that person's got beef with this person um and they'll basically <laughs> sum up the last year or so of storylines mm. so you don't have to watch endless hours of wrestling to understand and got appreciate it. why people are feuding or why two people might team up briefly but anyway the card game has 30 wrestlers it's classic wrestlers so it's people like randy like macho man randy savage uh younger taker Jake so the Snake. young Undertaker rather than old. Jake the Snake is in there, yes. Yeah, Jake um, the Snake. Unfortunately, there was also Hulk Hogan, um, which is a very unfortunate inclusion for various reasons. Um, but he Gross. is back in the Hall of Fame now, so they've kind of, you know, washed over that a bit. Back um, in the Hall of Fame when he should be in the toilet. Yep. <laughs> um, but the rest of the lineup is kind of the people you'd expect. There's like Steve Austin in there. There's no The Rock. Um, so it cuts oh, off on. kind of at a certain point. But yeah, the, the fact there's no Rock is a strange um, oversight. There's no John Cena, anyone like that. No John uh, Cena either. But there's like Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, and uh, Andre the Giant. Mankind. Mankind. Mankind is in there, yes. Hell yes. yeah. Uh, as Mankind, rather than pop, sock Cactus pop Jack or anything like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, so anyway, this card game is basically, you have a wrestler, you have a hand of cards, they are moves... You play the moves to attack certain other people. You point them at each other. You all reveal at once. They do certain damage. If they play a block card, they can block them. Like, certain cards will let you follow up with a combo or do your signature move. Once you take a certain amount of damage, uh, your wrestler gets eliminated. You have to swap to a new wrestler. You go for all 30. It's rubbish. Um, We've probably spoken about it more than it deserves, to be honest. Um... I think the main thing is there are some really great games about eliminating each other. So like Dungeon Mayhem, the D&D card game, I really like that. You have a unique set of cards for each class. They feel like those classes. This just feels like essentially blind luck at some point. Like if you don't have any block or reversal cards in your hand, there's no way you can really stop anyone attacking you. Uh, And when you're playing with multiple people, you can obviously discuss who you're going to attack, but really... There's no, there's no real reason to team up because oh. there's no strategy behind it. There's nothing you can really do that's interesting. Doing so your signature not. moves requires drawing a certain card, so you could go through the whole time and just never really get to do any of the interesting moves, mm. and they're not that interesting anyway because they're just basically more damage or like very bland effects. Mm. So it does not accurately reflect the drama... Of, of an actual Royal Rumble, Mr. Jarvis. Exactly, yeah. It, there's oh. there's no fun in it. It's just a bit boring. You're telling uh, me there's no card I can play that allows me to do a handstand walk back into the ring? Uh, Kofi Kingston is not in this game, unfortunately, so no. Well, no, I'm out. Not that I was ever in. Also, but I'm they out. gave Undertaker the choke slam, and really, the choke slam is Kane's finishing move, and the Undertaker should have Tombstone Pile Driver. <laughs> Um, but that is the least of its problems it's basically just a bit of naff game Uh, but that's the other thing I've played this this week so hey if you're into wrestling and you're into board games don't buy that one yeah seek out a copy of what would you recommend sorry yeah Matt Jarvis no no that's so WWE Superstar Showdown which I think is actually out of print now is not an amazing game but it's certainly decent (laughs) 
Like it's I it's all right. You find it very difficult to say these titles without a big smile on your face. I mean, it's... Uh, well, WWE Superstar Showdown, Alex Mann, is is a fantastic. It's because I've spent enough time around you all to know that as soon as I like launch into discussion of something like wrestling or Dragon Ball Z or something like that, I'm just like adding another thing to the list of things that will pop up at some point in our Slack channel you with me it. photoshopped onto. <laughs> I would say I. I know very little about wrestling, and I. The thing is, Jake Snake. I don't actually know anything about Jake Snake, <laughs> other than the fact that he's called Jake Snake. But I love the idea of him, like pulling out an actual snake. He does and, do like, that. Does he? Did he actually yeah. do that? that yeah, Jake the snake, snake. That yeah, he he used to bring a bag with a snake, um, and like it was his gimmick. So he would have a snake, and he would put it in the ring. <laughs> So yeah, he, he absolutely had a snake. And then the other person's like, "Oh, I'm gonna get what? The, why is there a snake in here?" <laughs> that's that's wrestling. Like it, it's both exactly what you expect. <laughs> I love the idea of just dropping the snake on the. Be like, there you go. <laughs> so yeah. Oh, so if you're into Matt, wrestling, you, uh, sorry, Wells. I was just getting, do you watch Super Eye Patch Wolf on YouTube? Because I feel like... I do not. I've, oh, you should probably search him up, because I feel like there is a Venn diagram of interests, and you and him are perfectly aligned. Yeah. <laughs> he makes good I videos will. as well. I'd recommend him. I'll check it out. All right. Um, uh, just so oh. quickly, I I found the... I, I felt it was a bit rude, so I, I found the names of those lovely designers I spoke to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's James Wyatt. Uh, and it's Wesley Wesley Schneider. So I wouldn't I wouldn't worry. <clears throat> in, I mean, if we're honest, they've already tuned out. Yeah. They were they were so upset. I just felt like you know maybe I could just make up for it. <laughs> Should we do some news? Yeah, yes, let's do, do some news because we've we've spent quite a lot of time covering yeah. what we've been playing this week. So yeah, we, we're gonna have to run through the news very quickly. <laughs> we've been recording for fifty one minutes already. <laughs> Although we did have our classic preamble for about 20 minutes. This is what happens when we bring you on, Wills. Yeah. You're the reason this podcast is so long. I'm a talky boy. I can't help it. <laughs> no, it's always good to have you. And I love Sherlock Holmes, so honestly, mm. it's a delight well, to Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be basically reiterating all of those points in the video, so look forward to that. Mm-hmm. There's no segue that works between Sherlock Holmes or wrestling and this news, so I'm just going to run straight into it. Uh, the Any Awards have been announced... Um, which is the it's put- any mentory, my dear. <laughs> oh, that's Jarvis. pretty good. That's really good. Let's write. Let's write that down as a title for this podcast. Because so far, I've only written just God things and Wiggins or something. <laughs> Wibbles. Uh, oh, any winners? The yes. Emmy Awards, Mr. Jarvis. So these are kind of the, I guess, the most prominent role-playing game awards, mm. kind of around. Um, they happen each year around Gen Con, which of course Gen Con didn't happen physically this year. Uh, Gen Con Online happened. Uh, we were a part of it. In fact, uh, we played, well, we played, the video team played Codenames uh, with ProZD, uh, which you can mm-hmm. see the video on our YouTube channel now if you missed it. Uh, it sounds Hell like yeah. it was a lot of fun and you invented a new speed round version speed of Codenames. Speed <laughs> So, yes, go check that out. But let's not get sidetracked anymore. Let's do this news. So, any awards announced, the big winner this year was Morkborg, mm. uh, which is is a really distinctive-looking RPG. Have yeah, any I think we talked it? about it on the last one we were on. I mm. remember... Um, I think there was a copy in the office because someone had one, I think. I can't remember mm. who. But um, 
it looks amazing like the cover is like it's bright yellow and black like all of the weapon illustrations like the Zweihander just like covers both pages like mm-hmm. it's very cool you might say very, Wills very cool. it has the best layout and design of any RPG this year Whoa. gold <laughs> <laughs> gold yeah so uh, it picked up four awards um, all four categories it was nominated in so product of the year best writing best layout and design uh, and then a silver medal in best game. So the Ooh. any awards for those who aren't familiar kind of have like gold and silver medals for each of their They're, categories. Speaking of the writing, one of my favourite things, I don't know if I mentioned it last time, but one of my absolute favourite things from that book is like the way that they give you the classes. So like you have like an archetype or whatever that you play as your character and one of them is like this guy who just loves biting people and the op- the opening line is you have between 20 and 30 friends who never let you down your teeth <laughs> <laughs> that's very good oh it's so good profession biting <laughs> bitey person uh so yeah so that picked up silver in best game uh gold in best game so to clarify, that's different from best product. So best product is kind of an all-in-one package mm. kind of thing. So like the way the rule book looks, the like physical nature, like any accessories, all that kind of thing. So Morkborg, best product of the year, best game of the year, Alien, the role-playing game, mm. uh, obviously based on the film, um, which we have a review of on the website from last year by Richard Jansen Fox, who yeah. was very positive about it. Uh, it sounds very interesting. It's kind of got like a cinematic mode as well as a kind of more traditional, um, uh, yeah, just like a campaign mode. Uh, so oh. you can kind of play more like a movie. Uh, so, yeah, and both of those games are from Free League Publishing, uh, which might be a familiar name from Tales from the Loop, the role-playing game, as well as various other bits and bobs. Uh, yeah. And they also kind of picked up the... Yeah, the they won an award as well, right? Fan-favorite yeah. publisher. So all of the any awards are like public-voted rather than jury-voted. Um, so yeah, so Free League really scooping them in oh, uh, between Morkborg and Alien. Uh, just quickly rattling through, so another big winner, kind of I think the the underdog winner uh, this year was Thousand Year Old Vampire, which is a solo yeah. RPG. It's amazing from the looks of things. I really want. Um, it's incredibly expensive, but the physical edition is yeah. like this hand hand weathered, like beautiful book because it kind of plays like um, like some of the journaling RPGs that I said about in my list. Uh, of the best solo RPGs, which you can look up on youtube.com forward slash Dicebreaker right now. Little segue. Um, but it has essentially like a sort of like choose your own adventure style book where you'll flip back and forth a number of pages based on a dice roll and then answer the prompts on that book. So you've got kind of like hard written stuff rather than drawing a card and it's saying, here's a sort of open ended thing, it'll be a lot more sort of specific and then they'll also progress if you ever come back to the page and stuff. It's really, really cool. I really want to give it a go. I've got the PDF just sort of sat on my PC ready to roll um so i'll be having a look at that at some point yeah so it it indeed picked up uh the top awards for best production values and best rules um Mm -hmm. so it's by designer tim hutchings uh it does look incredible um and it was runner up in product of the year so behind Mm. Borg. but i think it's just interesting maybe maybe it's because of the circumstances of this year um but to see a solo rpg Kind of, I think often they're they're more overlooked than your kind of more traditional do, it, group. It RPGs. did seem like this year's Ennies was a lot more um, like cast a wider net of stuff. It wasn't just like here's another big roll some dice and kill a goblin RPG. It was yeah. like yeah, no, actually here's some cool stuff that is like really inventive. Yeah, like even Alien, which is obviously based on a pretty popular existing piece of media. Like you know, I think it's still intriguing just like the possibilities you can have with a property like that 
And, you mm. know, other than, you know, it sounds like it's done really well, and I love Alien a lot. Um, like, that in line with Morkborg and a Thousand Year Old Vampire, like, horror is. Yeah, it's. it's Charging Horrors, in. Horror is a big thing in solo mm. RPGs. Yeah. It's a very, very popular genre, and I think. Um, it makes sense because it's like it's it's something that it's it's that kind of like telling ghost stories around a fire kind of vibe, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, on on like a reverse angle from that, if you'll allow me to do a segue here, Matt. Oh, go for it, Will. Hellboy RPG has been <gasps> yes. announced. Yes, yes. Based so on is... fifth edition D and D rules, and uh, you'll allow me to just sum up my feelings by going. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, this is very recent news. So this is it's from the the publisher that made the Hellboy board game, which actually was all right. Like I I think that game's pretty decent. Um, but this is based on the comics rather than the movies, at least. Um, well, it is. It would depend on when when you said that much, Jarvis. If it was based on the movies, it would depend on which movie you're talking about. Because if you said Guillermo del Toro's masterpiece, Hellboy Two: The Golden Army. Then I'd be like, yeah, if it if it comes with some kind of voice modulator yeah. that turns you into Rob Alvin, then <laughs> yeah. yeah, obviously I'm gonna play it. It's actually super meta, and you just play as Ron Perlman. Yeah, playing uh, as play, Hellboy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's it's from Mantic Games, who did the board game, which came out last year after a Kickstarter in 2018. Uh, mm. Board game, pretty good, like pretty good, uh, like uh, dungeon crawler. Um, this this sounds like you'd expect. You play as BPRD, BRPD, PR, BRPD. Um, so the Bureau for Paranormal no sorry BPRD Bureau for Paranormal <laughs> Research and whatever whatever You're, Bureau into Research of Paranormal oh of course they said it backwards <laughs> um, anyway BS your X-Files agents um, yeah. so yeah you are you're part of the same group as Hellboy you are not playing as Hellboy himself yeah it and appears. I think this is this is like one of the many reasons where I'm just like why like I you don't like love Hellboy because of Johnny got some armor on with a gun who's walking around in the background, you know what I mean? And I I think, like... Sorry, carry on. No, no, I was going to say, just to to be... For clarity and context, Mm -hmm. there is the suggestion you... Some classes or backgrounds may be able to have supernatural abilities. Yeah, 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 hang on, let's back up here. How far are we backing up? Are we going back to the start of the podcast? You mean to tell me that I can't be a fish man? I can't... I d- can't confirm that, I'm nor can I deny that. It might be, that might be possible. Confirm or deny that, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm raising the roof, Matt Jarvis, if that happens. Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> I might not um, even play this, but I'm still going to raise the roof. Well, we're getting up in arms, but there's not loads of detail just yet. They say you can well, have so some... Sorry, <laughs> let's make this new section that. really short oh never mind let's get like up in arms look, about this rpg we don't look, know that much about i just want one thing i want to point out is that like the reason that i immediately started snoring when reading about that was the hellboy is really cool and i think that the art is amazing and I, and I love ron perlman and all of that kind of stuff however um i always am skeptical about an rpg that uses a pre-existing system and that just rewrites it into mm. a new setting because it always feels a bit like you know, you, you're supposed to marry the mechanics of the setting. Like that's what makes RPG so good. But also, if you're going to use any system, why yeah. D&D? Why D&D? <laughs> the love of God. Why is this not Gumshoe? I think is yeah, like the big like your investigators. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, or like, or Forged in the Dark, or or anything. Like, it's just, there's there's so many other systems that I feel like would be would be better suited. Yeah. Why D and D fifth edition? To the love of God. So yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> but we will know more uh, when the Kickstarter lands later this summer. There's also a quick start that they've announced that will come alongside the campaign, so you'll at least be able to give it a shot for yourself, or at least read through the rules uh, mm-hmm. before you decide to back it or not. Um, so yes, uh, with that out of the way. Uh, speaking of, of games that are just the same thing again, there's a new second mm. edition of Seven Wonders coming out. That was a very good segue, Matt. <laughs> uh, there's, this is particularly apt because there's not loads that's new in it. It's basically a kind of visual overhaul and they've tidied great, up the rules yeah. a bit. Um, but obviously Seven Wonders is a much beloved game. Uh, they, they describe it as the most awarded game or board game ever. Which I, I think is like got, where's the where's I've the proof the for that? Like, I'll tell you though. I'll tell you what, Matt. I've got the original box in that room, and like literally, it's it's really ugly because it, all of the sides, yeah, it's like a square box, right? And the top is the art, and the bottom is the sort of blurb and whatever. Literally, every side panel is award, 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 award. And it's like okay, lads, calm down. You know, do you remember that Batman Arkham Asylum cover? Oh, where it was yeah, like yeah. all the review scores like plastered over it in red. It looks like that. It's horrendous. Yeah, like I'm not. I'm not discounting that it's like Seven Wonders is a great game that it mm-hmm. has a lot of awards I just think it's a weird line to run with where it's like most <laughs> awarded game of all time and it's like, like it's, most, most spoken about board game <laughs> yeah. in all of human history um, Ooh, okay. but it certainly has sold a lot of uh, copies it's sold more than a million copies uh, so I'm sure Seven Wonders second edition will be A good and B sell a bunch yeah. uh, that's the that's the story it is out uh, when's it out I should know this um <laughs> I can't see it in the story I'm sure it was maybe announced uh, later this year for sure later this year yeah uh, That's a direct quote there. Editor in chief, Sidebreaker Matt Chalmers. Mister, use that in your articles. Mister Whelan, I'll have you know that you leave Miss Jarvis alone. Okay. Sorry, um, I'm already swinging because I've been I've been ragging on D and D. Yeah, we already, like, so. we filled our quota banter this week. Let's move on to hard news. More hard news. Um, Alex, me and you wrote this story about Dungeon Fighter, another new edition of a game that is ten years I old. I did. Yeah, Dungeon Fighter is ten years old apparently. <laughs> Uh, and it's a dexterity game where you roll dice over a target board and you try and deal a certain amount of damage to different enemies. Uh, and they're releasing a new edition in two different versions. Mm. Uh, so each version is kind of based off a different kind of campaign with like a weird mechanic for each one. So uh, there's like a nature based one. Uh, where the dice are made from wood. I I, I don't 100% know whether they're actually made from wood. Uh, <laughs> but apparently they're bouncy. Uh, and then the other one is more like a kind of fire volcano style setting. And um, I believe the target board is kind of slightly different from the, the default one that's in the other copy. Uh, so... Yeah, no, I, I like Dungeon Fighter. It's a good game. So, yeah, I've not tried it. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of dexterity games, as you can see, because I just scrolled down the article and then there was my there face you know, in the video the about dexterity games. <laughs> yeah, it, so hopefully this will make it more available to people. And they've added a few extra things as well, like new monsters and uh, being able to level up, etc. So there you go. Mm-hmm. And that's Kickstarter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, September. Cool. Uh, all right. Kickstart in September, and it's due to come out next stuff. year. Excellent. Uh, another, not a new edition, but another game that is 
appearing in a new form. Alex Mean, you also wrote this about <laughs> Santorini, New York, which is a ridiculous name because those are two different places on the globe. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? They're That's like writing Birmingham, Mumbai or something. Like, <laughs> like They're what? two very different places. <laughs> Pros Birmingham, colon, Mumbai. <laughs> um, yeah, so there is a new game from this in the Santorini series which uh, started quite a long time ago and then was officially published uh, as just Santorini and it's about being Greek gods and building up the city and having one of your followers be in the highest point of the city. It's got fun little physical blocks you can stack up. Uh, uh, so it's like a fairly light strategy uh, building mm -hmm. game uh, and they were like, let's set it in New York. So essentially from what i can mm. tell the game is basically the same as the original santorini but instead you're in, <laughs> instead you're in uh sort of early 20th century new york and there's like skyscrapers and you know the statue of liberty and um i think you have to play cards uh which are numbered uh to decide who's going first uh, that turn and then mm -hmm. you discard whatever card you played um, so obviously there's a strategy involved with you know playing the right cards at the right time and whoever yeah reaches the top and has the Statue of Liberty owns it uh, <laughs> is the winner so yeah looks and that's how New York was built <laughs> that's how New York was built yeah yeah it it does like it it sounds like there's a, a couple of changes but compared to the nice clean white buildings and blue domes yeah. of Santorini an island known for its beauty not that you know New York is not attractive but they've gone with I like mean, the whole like apartment <laughs> box depends where you go yeah um, yeah it's very and the, the colours are all weird like mm. like muted bronze and like dark blues and greys yeah it's nowhere near as like visually arresting as mm. um, and you don't have the, the Greek the cool Greek god stuff as well so. yeah, yeah why uh, couldn't you just put that in New York <laughs> <laughs> that would be much more interesting mm. uh, I will say that the, the mobile version of Santorini is very good uh, if anyone hasn't mm. played it before it's no, I've not. it's very polished and it's very good looking and yeah that game is it's, yeah, it's cool uh, moving on uh, with a bit of a run of awards it being the summer and all summer awards season uh, the Diana Jones Award which I think is, is probably a name that not a lot of people know um, it's kind of more of a I guess a, a prestige award, even like it's it's quite no well known in the industry, but I think it's mainstream kind of. If you're an average kind of person into board games, you probably haven't heard of it compared to maybe mm. the Spielberg Yards or other Game of the Year awards. So Diana Jones Award is kind of it's it's named after. Uh, so if you're wondering who Diana Jones is, then nobody. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Diana Jones Award is named after its own trophy. Uh, which is a Perspex pyramid containing the last unsold copy of the Indiana Jones RPG released in like 1986 <laughs> or four. Um, oh, it's big, big, big uh, fan of that. Huge energy. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's this burnt fragment that just says Diana Jones. Um, <laughs> and the pyramid also contains some of the uh, infamous Nazi TM um, tokens from that game where Lucas... Um, which tried to publish it, obviously having the rights to Indiana Jones, tried to basically trademark every last word in the RPG, including the word Nazi. Um, 
so yeah so that's that's a bit of background, background behind the award and why it's called that um but it's a really uh, interesting huge. award because it it doesn't reward particular games or that has been given to games it basically is just given to something that so it that's full name is like the diana jones award for excellence in gaming so it's a consideration of something whatever it might be that's made tabletop gaming you know excellent in the last year so mm. it's gone to designers such as eric lang in the past it's gone to games like ticket to ride and dominion it's gone to general concepts so a couple of years ago it went to actual play um so playing mm -hmm. rpgs online like critical role and dungeon breaker and so on um so it's it's very unpredictable and it's decided by a secret jury of kind of industry professionals um, most of whom are anonymous um, so a few names are known so there's uh, da, 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 da. there's uh, I think Peter Atkinson the founder of Wizards of the Coast uh, there's John Kavalik who's the illustrator of Munchkin, people like that they've, they've publicly re revealed that they're on the jury um, but most people are unknown so this is all background to the fact that this year it was given to Black Excellence in Gaming um, so it was awarded to obviously just bl black creators, black designers black professionals in the industry uh, the tabletop industry um, and they picked out more than or a couple of dozen um, black creators, designers, publishers members of the tabletop industry um, to represent this um, but awarded it to I guess the concept of black mm. black excellence in gaming as a whole um, and kind of acknowledged that it was you know much overdue um, they, they actually made a really a really good statement about you know the contributions that black creators have made to tabletop gaming um it's it's the individuals who were named aren't just people who are currently active there were some um kind of people who were involved in the formative years of the tabletop industry um so the late cliff jones um cliff cj jones who was one of the co-founders of wizards of the coast obviously uh, publisher of D D and magic the gathering nowadays um who passed away sadly a few years ago um and then currently active designers such as Eric Lang um, and Mike Pondsmith of cyberpunk RPG fame, um, but not just big names either. There were some indie designers, so uh, Orion D. Black. Um, so they are an indie um, designer. I think they, oh, gosh, I can't remember the name of the game. I'm so sorry, um, but it's on itch uh, if you look up Orion. Um, and then like Dice Tower contributor Mandy Hutchinson, um, founding members of Rise Rivals of Waterdeep, which is a D&D actual play group. Um, so Tanya DePass and Sharif Jackson. So like I say, um, more than two dozen different creators, um, but awarded to the concept of black excellence in gaming as a whole. Hmm. So yeah, it's a it's a really interesting award. And it's one that's always, like I say, the, the Spiel de Jahres we discussed a couple of episodes ago, um, and Kenneth Spiel de Jahres, although there can be some surprises, they always go to games. They're always kind of like a, this game is popular or this game has done something yeah. interesting. I think the Diana Jones is always one of those things where if you're just that little bit more interested about how the industry ticks, it's in, it's always interesting to see mm. what comes up in any year. Um, mm. But obviously this is extremely well-deserved and as they say in the statement, kind of long overdue. Mm. Um, so yeah, I would, I would go and check it out and I would check out that list of creators that they have named um, and check out their work. Uh, finally, let's round up news with... Uh, just a an, another release, um, which was today, which is why it's at the bottom of this list, although it's probably one of the smaller stories. Uh, Alex Meehan, the great Dalmuti. Dalmuti? Dalmuti? Something oh. like that. 
Um, was that a yawn? I, like I even listening to the news, you just... it was... <laughs> no, it was a cough. Um, I had a little tickle in my throat. Um, yeah, the great down dumb mooty Dungeons and Dragons edition, essentially. Um, it's a trick-taking game based off President. Um, I only realised sort of what it was actually when I was reading through the rules again. I was like, oh, okay, no, I know what this is. Uh, and yeah, it's essentially a very straightforward card game. We have cards numbered from 1 to 12 and you basically have to try and play increasing ranks of numbered cards um, and try and get rid of your cards first uh, and they're releasing an edition uh, with basically a Dungeons and Dragons theme uh, the artwork's pretty cool um, it's by someone called Harry Conway I believe um, yeah he does some really cool illustrations uh, and the original was designed by Richard Garfield that person behind the magic Mm-hmm. The gathering. That there magic man. Yeah. And <laughs> this game will be out in November. Uh, cool. so if you like right. trick taking games and you like D D There you go. Sure. Or buy a set of playing <laughs> Or buy a set of playing cards and play president or something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've not played the Great Dumbarty, so it might be slightly different and it might be worth picking up. But hey, it's there if you want it. It's uh, there. <laughs> shall we move on to emails quickly? Yeah. Yes. Very, very quickly. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. Wills, would you like to read this one from Guy on Twitter? Uh, from Guy, yes. Regarding TTRPGs and the idea of a session zero, especially for groups you aren't already good friends with, have you ever run one? What worked? What didn't? And how would you structure them if you had to run one? Cheers and keep up the good work. Thanks, Guy, from Twitter. Um, I think with session zeros, I tend to um, lean towards the sort of Blades in the Dark session um, kind of uh, theory where you should just drop people in the action into something that's not part of the of the main kind of story that you're trying to tell. So let's say that, you know, it's it's literally supposed to be like a prologue, like a prequel, right? So it's you're supposed to just be letting these characters get to know how they interact with each other whilst also letting the people playing those characters get comfortable with playing uh, with other people, right? So I think you should just... Put them in a really low stakes, like low complications kind of um, adventure that they're already right in the middle of. So they don't have to be like, you know, who's the leader right now? Who's going to sort of take charge on, on this kind of thing? Or who's going to be the person who's like the face of the group or whatever? Um, just like they're already happening. They're already having to sort of say, OK, well, I'm good at this. I'll quickly do this. And I think just sort of putting people in that kind of situation where they're already having to cooperate because they're they're physically right in the middle of something that they don't fully understand just yet um it lets people just sort of take away some of the social anxiety and stop thinking about oh god am i doing this right and just think oh okay well i need to do this right now because i'm the person who's good at that so i will now speak up and say my piece and all that kind of stuff and then it, it kind of also i think one reason i like doing this is it it kind of highlights people who immediately go oh i'm a bit uncomfortable now because then you can see that and you can address it, and you can help them out, and you can, um, like, give them time to breathe without having to uh, take time out of the main adventure that you've planned, right? So 
if you go straight into, hey, here's this big thing I wrote, or here's this big module booklet, here's the lore of this entire place, here's the big bad who you're trying to face up against, here's the town that you're in, here's loads of NPCs, everyone will be just going like, whoa, okay. <laughs> so I think you just need to like let them dip their toes in the mechanics and the world a bit, and get to know each other, and then just, once you get to session one, then you can just start like dumping the exposition on them, and I think they'll feel a lot more comfortable with that. Yeah. That's usually my sort of go-to. For sure. I think like you don't have to worry about it being overly coherent for like the reasons mm. you were saying. It's like if you are like, okay, let's let's say we're trying to climb a wall, here's how you do a test, yeah. and then be like, okay, now like you're facing a thing. Don't worry about trying to necessarily tie it together narratively. Because that also gives people the space to go like, oh, this is essentially a tutorial. I can speak yeah. up about something rather than feel like they're going to interrupt the narrative yeah. or, you know, say something that feels out of place whereas if it's just yeah, a little yeah, like yeah. okay let's do a general kind of test let's do a bit of combat let's do a, whatever it may be for whatever rule system you're using you just break it down into chunks like that and if after half an hour of these little kind of bite-sized bits you want to do a kind of more like a slightly more structured mini mini kind of session mm -hmm. like i think that's fine but don't worry too much about having to like will said don't worry about having to plot out too much or having to have an arc of some kind within this session just make it purely about getting to grips with things mm. i've never planned a session zero for people i don't know so i wouldn't really be able to contribute to that much but um yeah i mean i would just throw them in a in a fairly low stake situation maybe like a like a tavern or whatever depending mm -hmm. on what setting you're in yeah, like and a brawl or something you know like yeah just, yeah like yeah. just maybe have some npcs interact with them but very much give them the uh, opportunity to just interact amongst themselves as their characters and then that would give them an idea of whether you know it's important that that players you know that players gel well with one another and sometimes certain players just don't so you know that session zero can help work out you know whether that is the case or not so yeah that's what i would do fantastic uh mian would you like to read this one from will oh that's oh, um, will yeah it's will hi will, will. <laughs> hi will <laughs> um will asked a uh, podcast question what concept in modern board game design would you like to see just go away completely um, for me, I'd like to see hundreds of minis games go away, yes please. <laughs> Nicely designed tokens and standees are often more evocative, plus you can fit more on shelves. I very much wholeheartedly agree with that, Will. Yeah. Stop I'd... shoving miniatures games on Kickstarter, please. Mm. The, the worst thing is that they're not miniatures games as well, they're a standard board game which happens to be full of plastic, and I think a lot of the time that's, it ends up just being a lot of gatekeeping as well, because you end up having this board game which is relatively simple but costs 120 yeah. quid because it's got a super detailed resin model of a pig from a fairy tale book and it's like <laughs> why why did you do this <laughs> yeah yeah it's i find it's rare that minis add anything to game there are there are occasions where it's like okay you just have minis minis for the player characters and it's like yeah. these are a nice touch yeah. but they're never yeah. essential never no ever essential no. unless you're doing a miniatures game in which yeah, case yeah. like you know like that's fine <laughs> but yeah it's that's definitely one that i would agree with yeah i think the other one i think just a general kind of thing is like re-theming things to just be blandly fantasy yeah 
There have been yeah. a number of games where it's just like, oh, an, a really interesting original thing, but I guess the theme maybe didn't take with a wider audience, so they just make it some uh, kind of bland, <laughs> yeah, just kind of bland fantasy. Like, or they just you can do... um, license it. Yeah. Like, like one thing I really noticed with Fort is that that's just such a great theme. Like, yeah. why don't we see stuff like that more often? Like, it's just mm. so. It not only is it relatable because we were all kids once. But also, it's just so. Oh, okay, that really stands out. Mm. Um, rather Plus, than like that, that I think is a really good example as well, Mian, because like that could have been your yeah. recruiting soldiers to an actual fort, and like the original was about like Romans, yeah. right? And yeah. it's like although animal Romans, <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. It, but it, yeah, it could well have been that, and it would have been a lot more boring for it. Like, yeah, no, the, like uh, the theme, theme is so much more interesting. Theme isn't everything, and a lot of designers. Um, aren't really that fussed about theme and that's fine like they're very much mechanics driven but like then I think that's where the publisher needs to step in and be like okay let's make something great with this and sometimes they do like with you know Baron Park um great theme stop (laughs) um you know that's really great because I would rather play a game like that than just generic amusement park Hmm. game um well, like, like, point salad is such a nice little thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. people would think, oh, f- you know, vegetables, you know, it's really boring. I'm like, actually, uh, I think it really works with the cute kind of cheeky yeah. feel about the game and, and obviously the pun. And again, it's not something you see much of, whereas, yeah, like fantasy, sci-fi, even like horror, sci-fi horror games are becoming a dime a dozen. And it's like, mm-hmm. I really like that theme, but at the moment it just feels like it's, like, just, there's a billion of them. Yeah, like, mm. Nemesis, Alone, all, like, there just seem to be a run of, it's Alien. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, these things change depending on, you know, like, fads, just like anything, or like, you know, chasing, you know, something that that's done very well, or like, mm. or certain, yeah, like, what's the word like things that are kind of popping up in the the general community interest and i just think that really looking outside of the box or even doing something you think that might be dull is actually quite nice like patchwork like you know it doesn't need to be i'm a holy soldier of the empire and i'm going to (laughs) destroy this thing yeah, I mean, look at Azul, Azul for instance, mm. Um, mm. which uh, we happen to have a very good tutorial video on uh, oh, youtube.com yes. for slash Available now. <laughs> uh, but that's not the reason I bring it up. The reason I bring it up is that game sold incredibly well. I think over a million copies in like a couple of years. It came out 2017, I think, 2016 maybe. So not many years at all, but it sold a, over a million units, I think, remembering off the top of my head, which is a lot for a board game. But that's a game literally about tiling walls. But you you know that theme doesn't really matter like it it kind of makes sense in the gameplay but the presentation of it is so kind of exciting versus what could be a boring theme yeah and it just shows you that if you take the right theme like i think point seller is a great example like sushi go is another one yeah it's just like well sushi go sushi go works really well as well where it's like yeah of course like a drafting game it yeah. makes sense to be picking sushi off a conveyor yeah, exactly. like, it's, like if yeah, you it's just really fun and cute if you think and that's another phil walker harding game mm-hmm. uh if you think cleverly about how you're going to do your theme you can make pretty much anything interesting 
Uh, I would argue things like, like, I think, like, pipeline or stuff like that does not do anything for me. Like, industry, stuff like that, I'm like, mm, you've got container. to work really hard. Let yep, me tell you about Container. container. Uh, <laughs> I'm not disputing whether it's a good game, Matt Jarvis. I'm just saying, <laughs> shipping containers really doesn't do it for me. Um, <coughs> trains. Oh! Hey now, trains <laughs> Come are. Come on now. <laughs> I'm not going to finish the sentence. I was about to say it's not suitable for this podcast. I will tell you afterwards. Um, mm. But uh, I'm yeah, shocked. Sir. <laughs> Scandalized, Mr. Jarvis. Hey, I've seen uh, what was it? Brief encounter. No, uh, you're thinking of North by Northwest. No, you're also North thinking by of Brief Encounter. Yeah, I mean, you know, trains. Right, where are we anyway, again? <laughs> I'm confused. I think, yeah, what we're agreed on is like, stop stop doing fantasy because it's boring. Or at least yeah, do it in an interesting way, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, let's cram in this uh, very quick great. one. <laughs> great. <laughs> let's not hear any slander against trains, which is the main reason we're moving on here. Uh, David Williams, which RPG rule system is your favourite uh, i.e. lasers and feelings is the one that David has thrown out. Thank you, David. Oh, Plays in the Dark really good. <laughs> it's really good. I keep coming back to it. Um, I, if I were to name one other than that, though, it would be... Oh. Somebody fill in. <laughs> I love Gumshoe. I absolutely Gumshoe's love Gumshoe really as a system. It's super yeah. simple, but it's really evocative of, of investigation. Um, Trail of Cthulhu, as anyone that's listened to this podcast for a while knows, is a game that I absolutely adore. Um, yeah, it's just really simple. It does the, oh, of course you don't have to roll for this because you already have knowledge in it, but then you can spend extra points to get more information by essentially applying yeah. your knowledge. It's a really smart system that's really simple. Mm-hmm. I also love Powered by the Apocalypse. Yeah, uh, no, I've been playing a lot of Monster Power of the Week. The Apocalypse, I'm not a big fan of Apocalypse, <gasps> but... I've, I feel like I've talked about that before, so I won't go into it. We've well, already eaten enough time on this podcast. It's, it's just created so many great games, like Monster of the Week, mm-hmm. and uh, Root was fun, and I think it's just got a lot of versatility, and it's very straightforward, which I really like. Uh, I would say my personal pick would be Dread. I talked about it a billion times on this podcast, but it just, oh, it just really does things to me, that system. My God. Like, who, what kind of, like, genius takes a Jenga town being like, you know what we can do with this? <laughs> oh, sorry, um, non-branded... A stacking blocks town. Block tower. <laughs> uh, and is like, we can make this into a functioning RPG system that works so well with survival horror, and I just love how, I love that, like, the physical manifestation of, of tension. That's just so clever, I just think it's awesome yeah you you've spot my um memory there Miam, because i forgot how much i love 10 candles as well 10 yeah candles 10 candles such a good rule system yeah. and that's that i think going back to the whole debate about like don't just slap another theme on an already made system that was something that was built from the ground up to deliver that experience yeah, in every yeah. single aspect exactly. of it the way the candles work the way the dice work everything is built to make your your characters feel like they're losing control over time and everything's falling into that sort of tragic horror and it, it, it's perfect yeah. i love it i think i think systems like powered by the apocalypse for example are, are great because they can be versatile and they can fit they're very like moddable yeah, mm, yeah yeah settings but also i really like rpg systems that are built for for this purpose like this is what yeah. they're great at this is what you use it for 
and I'm like, and I still need to investigate loads of RPGs that are like, like that. Uh, mm. I know there's a few. Ah, oh, must be up my head, but I know there's some that are like built around like. Um, I know it's very similar to Dread, but like Star Crossed. Yeah. Really, I mm. really want to play that, but like maybe other RPGs that are just about. Oh yeah, you're just here, like not to go out battling, not to necessarily go out on wild adventures, but just like I don't know, you're here to establish a relationship with this person in mm. a really fun way that mm. plays around with there's, the genre. There's one I'm quite excited about called uh, Wonder Song, which is um, uh, becoming a Kickstarter very soon, I think. I think it's either started its Kickstarter or it's on the way. Um, but that's got that similar vibe meme where it's like, it's these aren't like adventurers, these are normal people having like normal sort of like, you know, excursions and and you're you're telling stories about real people, but also their animals, and it's like you know, it's just that it exists as a um, you know something that doesn't have to just yeah. be a sort of like you stab a goblin, roll a d twenty, okay, here's the result. Mm. Like uh, not RPGs have progressed past that point, I think now. You know? Not every RPG needs to be like a massive ten year long campaign. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Like uh, yeah. the, those ones are great, but you can also have just ones that are built to just last an, an hour. Or like mm. a single session or something, and I just think variety, you know, like variety. Experiment with systems. Do wild stuff. Like this server has ghosts. Did I say that correctly? <laughs> the um, one you play yeah. in Discord, right? The Discord one. Come on, Will. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, can't, I haven't played it. I don't know. Um, I swear you were talking about it. Um, no, it might be Johnny. So, uh, I, it was Johnny, but I swear you talked about it. As well. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> not having this argument. Um, yeah. It sounds very cool. <laughs> I'll quickly yeah. add that um, I've been recently reading uh, an anthology of uh, erotic like role playing games. Oh my uh, god, Honey Matt and Jarvis, send this to me now. It's it's <laughs> it's really interesting, but I think obviously the the content is much more mature than most role playing games. But I think what it mm. does really well is it does look at role playing games from a very different perspective of how mm. are these games about like two or more people connecting with each other whether that's emotionally or physically or or whatever it may be um and i think it's a really interesting like i i was reading through and i like some of them i think i would struggle to play with like my particular group i think they require certain players um to really invest in them and to really kind of handle them handle them with the respect and the kind of you know gravitas they deserve um but the the anthology itself i think is really well put together it discusses consent um really well and kind of making people feel comfortable at the table whatever the subject matter may be mm. um so yeah i think it that's a really and and again like there are i think there's a game by alex roberts in there which is what sparked my memory the the designer of starcrossed oh. um but mm. it, it really kind of yeah comes at role playing from a different a different angle so yeah also that recent kickstarter for yongshi blood on the banquet hall like yeah. that yes. i'm really pumped about that like can we talk about that, Matt Jarvis? Yes, we can, and that leads us nicely because we're almost out of time, but <gasps> oh it leads us nicely Matt, to the Jarvis, end of this, this podcast. Listeners, this is the first time I'm hearing this as well, so I'm very excited. <sighs> Look at this fantastic segue into what's coming up on Dicebreaker in the next week or so, because we will have a playthrough of Jiangxi Blood in the Banquet Hall with co-designers Banana <gasps> Chan and Senfun Lim. Yay! 
yes. um, which should be up not long after you hear this podcast. I believe it should be up this weekend. Um, uh, we're yet to record it, so that it, it may be a little bit later. Um, but yeah, we're really excited to play with both Sen and Banana. Um, and that game seems really interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's about a a family running a restaurant by day, and then by night there are they basically beset by vampires. Yes, um, so it's a family of Chinese yes. immigrants who are living uh, and working in. Oh my goodness, is it New York? Uh, I believe it's New York. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and what's sorry, Karen? Yeah, and Jiangxi's for those who don't know, are, like, vampires from Chinese law. Like, they're really awesome. Uh, and, yeah, it's just about being a family. Like, you have the, the trials and tribulations of, like, working together to run this restaurant, you know, whilst dealing with people being racist uh, mm. and, you know, forming bonds together and, and supporting one another. And then you have a vampire, a Zhongxi, who comes to visit you at night. And you had to basically cope with that. But it mm. sounds really, really interesting. Yeah. It's very, very cool sounding. I'm really excited to play it. Yeah. I think it, it does a great job of... So Matt sent around a, a PDF of um, a portion of the rulebook, which basically talks about, like, you know, how do you play uh, a very specific sort of racial character, i.e. Uh, a Chinese-American mm. immigrant, whilst you know not being that race yourself and it's like it goes through it's like hey like this is fine like it's it's fine for you to play characters who aren't from the same background that you yep. are it's about how you do it mm. it's about um being respectful and, and like avoiding things you know don't do an accent for god's sake don't like you know you're not a you're not a kung fu master like the, these are bad stereotypes you should be yep. avoiding and like you know things like and it takes you through all of that stuff just a very matter of fact very like look if this is the first time you've heard this that's fine. I'm going to explain it to you mm. so that, you know, we can all grow together kind of thing. Yeah. And I think it's it's really, really and cool to see stuff like that in the, in the in the industry. It's awesome that it's a setting based on just... Obviously, it's got Zhongxi's in it, which isn't normal. But um, it is just about, like, a family running mm-hmm. a restaurant. You know, it's not based in, like, a stereotypical kind of setting. It is, like, something that you don't see enough of with you know yeah you don't see enough of you know these kinds of settings yeah so mm. i believe that's still currently live on kickstarter by the time you hear this as well yeah uh, mm-hmm. and it just says one of america's chinatowns circa 1920 so okay cool. uh but yeah uh that playthrough should be live very soon uh well, and mm. wills what else do we have coming up on youtube.com forward slash dicebreaker mm-hmm. Well, Matthew Jarvis, we have coming up on YouTube.com forward slash Dice Breaker. Um, Of course, your Pandemic Season Zero review will already be up on the channel by the time this is live. Um, We also have... um, So I think Dungeon Breaker is taking a back seat for this week because we've got some illness. So that is the slot that um, Jiangxi will be filling. So that should be tomorrow after you've heard this, hopefully. Uh, On Sunday, we should have Alex Lowley's review of Fort, provided that she feels better. Um, and then next week, we're hopefully going to be continuing our playthrough of um, a Blades RPG session that we've done for a special event as well. So have a look out for that, which is very cool. Yes, so the exciting. Metaverse. For the if metaverse. you want to go check out the Metaverse, we will be part of it. Um, and Ooh. we have some exciting <laughs> other bits coming up uh, around uh, PAX Online and EGX Digital, uh, which is in September. So keep your eyes out for those. Uh, there'll be announcements pretty soon, but we've got some fun stuff lined up. 
Uh, and then on the website, uh, as I mentioned, we have a written review of Pandemic Legacy Season 0, uh, which will have some of the same points as my video review, but in a different kind of form because it's text mm. rather than video. So maybe mm. go into a little bit more detail there. Uh, already up, we have Dan Jolin took a look at Mazes and Monsters, which is a film mm. from 1982. Tom Hanks' first starring role, wow, in fact. Tom, really? Yeah. 26-year-old Tom Hanks. Um, and it's it's very much of the era. It's based on a book of the same name, which was based on a real-life case um, of a student who went missing in some steam tunnels. Um, and essentially, it was around the time of the satanic panic. It was kind of contributing factor um, because it was believed that well, it was known that the student had been playing D&D, and so a lot was ascribed mm. to that. Um, but it's a really interesting kind of look at the backstory of both the real-life kind of tragedy um, that inspired the book. And the book is schlocky as anything. It really kind of <laughs> plays up the, yeah, you know, the... satanic panic stuff was. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting look at, at that and kind of how that then led to the movie and kind of what became of the, the movie. And obviously, everyone knows what become, became of Tom Hanks. Yeah. Um, but everything else out the back of it. Uh, so that's a really, a really interesting read. Uh, and then we'll have the, the various uh, news articles each day. Uh, we've got some various guides and lists and whatnot coming up for recommendations. Uh, but you can expect to see much more on dicebreaker.com and youtube.com forward slash dicebreaker. Uh, and if you're interested in getting some Dicebreaker merch yeah, and what the summer range... Uh, well, this is not part of the new range. I am wearing the Big Deck Energy shirt, Big a Deck classic Energy. by this point. Yeah, because Matt Jarvis does indeed have Big Deck uh, Energy. Which Wills and I now have to coordinate our wardrobe so we don't wear on the same I, day. I genuinely, I had to ask Matt if he was wearing it today because I knew he would. Uh, and we couldn't be wearing the same, so I'm wearing Death Grips instead. Excellent. Just mixing it up a little bit. Um, so, yes. But if you're interested in getting some of the new summer range of merchandise, that's dicebreaker.myshopify dot com uh, there's water bottles and mugs and hoodies and shirts and all sorts uh, and we'll have some more joining that range sometime in the future uh, no details yet but for now such a tease Matt Darvis I know look at that uh, keep tuning back in um, but you can I think I forgot to say you can email us if you've got a question for the podcast you can email us at podcast at dicebreaker.com you can find us on social media at Join Dicebreaker uh, and on Facebook and Instagram as well. But you can find us back here next Friday on the Dicebreaker podcast. But until then, I've been Matt Jarvis. Thank you for joining me, Alex Meehan. It's been delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us, uh, Wheels. I don't have a signature sound, I'm afraid, but you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for joining us, all of you listeners. Until we meet again, stay safe, wear a mask, and have a lovely day. Bye. Bye.